Hello everybody, my name is Christopher Jackson and today I'm delighted to be hosting one of our special deep dive episodes into another unique but important aspect of the hydrogen ecosystem, law. And I'm delighted to have not only with me, of course, my famous co-host Andrew Leadham, who of course is the Chief General Counsel at Biotech, but also with us is Ross Fairley and Lauren Luscombe from Burgess Salmon. For those who may not be familiar, Burgess Salmon is a leading UK law firm, and I can safely say, uh, without giving too many, uh, I think, surprise or secrets away, that Protein's been very proud to work with Burgess Salmon on a number of projects, and so it's fantastic to have them with us for this episode of Deep Dive, talk a little bit about all of the challenges and advice that often businesses like ours, frankly, just don't really appreciate or understand in the context of how you build and develop net zero projects, how you manage some of those legal and regulatory risks, and what role that ultimately the legal system has in facilitating and enabling hydrogen projects. We're delighted to have them here on the show, so hopefully you'll enjoy it as well. Well, look, Ross and Lauren, it's a pleasure to have you with us, so uh, thank you very much for your time. You know, I guess uh, for a project developer, when we think of lawyers, we tend to think of something that's very expensive and that our investors tend to get very upset about. But obviously, lawyers are a really important part of how we put together projects. And certainly for new ecosystems, they are particularly important in looking at what has gone before and trying to figure out what might be relevant for the now. So what do you see sort of as the role of lawyers and the legal profession in helping to facilitate hydrogen development? And, and where would you say we need to focus on initially, given the stage of the market? And, and perhaps I can start with you, Ross, and then, and then go over to Lauren. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Chris. And th- thanks for having us, uh, Andrew and Chris. Yeah, it sounds like we're a necessary evil to, uh, to, to, project, to project developers. And um, I'll, I'll come back to that. But I think actually, you know, good lawyers if they're experienced and they know the market, can actually provide a huge benefit to projects. But we'll come back to that in a minute. I think it's probably worth taking a step back, to be honest, uh, because and look at what, what what's the purpose of law and what, what it can do for a growing industry like hydrogen. And the reality is that if we talk about all of the incentives that need to be in place and all the push-pull drivers that need to be in place to develop hydrogen, in whichever part of the globe, one of the big drivers of that would be regulation, as we've seen and witnessed with all sorts of other clean and net zero technologies. And, and, and you know, by its very nature, the boom in, in hydrogen is resulting from decarbonisation targets, which are legally binding. If you look at what's happening in the UK, it's, it's a target under the Climate Change Act. And that's what's driven the huge move towards hydrogen and policies towards hydrogen. So law has played a, a fantastic role in that and will continue to do. And in its, at its best, legal regulation can be really positive for an industry. Bad regulation, of course, can have um, the completely opposite effect, as, uh, as we know. And, you know, there's, there, there sometimes is bad regulation that needs to be tackled and changed. So I suppose that is one of the roles of, uh, roles of a lawyer as well. Um, I think for, at, a, at a project level, just coming back to what's the role of lawyers themselves, I think they can play a very useful role in uh, risk allocation, protecting parties. Hydrogen is one of those, we, we talked about, it's one of those vectors where it's involving a lot of different parties, demand side, distribution side, production side, who are your customers, where, you, where are you getting the raw materials from, where are you getting the electricity from, and all of those need contracts and those need to be pieced together. So allocating risk fairly amongst parties is, is the big role of contracts and contracts are needed for that. And in fact, in fact, if you look at the 
business model in the UK that's being proposed at the moment. You don't get off ground zero for a business model contract without some form of contract with your demand customer being able to, to, to demonstrate that. So that's an important role as well. And ultimately, let's not forget that um, law plays a big role in the last resort. So sometimes there are impasses in projects. You get to a point, I would say, let's say consenting planning. You're with a planning authority. It can't make a decision. It's in difficulties. At what point, or it's made a perverse decision, at what point do you just say, we've tried all we can to make a logical decision here, but ultimately we need to resort to some sort of solution to, to unblock this. And, you know, sometimes law plays a, plays a role in that. I mean, before I hand over to uh, Andrew, who I'm sure has some thoughts on this one, I mean, Lauren, just, just um, you know, picking up on some of those themes from Ross, I mean, obviously one of the main reasons why we talk so much about sort of the role of, of the legal profession and the role of the legal system is, frankly, is certainty for investment, right? And obviously, as a project developer, needing that certainty is pretty crucial to getting these projects off the ground. But one of the challenges in any market like hydrogen is what is your precedent for risk sharing, as Ross was saying? How do you actually start thinking about that? So when you and colleagues are trying to help advise businesses looking at this ecosystem and thinking about risk reward, where do you even start? What is the kind of you know, template or baseline that you you work from initially when you start helping companies to think through the contracts and what should people be thinking about that perhaps they're not? I think you go back to what uh, similar technologies and similar rollouts and look at how those models have been adapted over time. Uh, and you, you look at how the risk allocations work there. And if you've been involved in financing and investing in projects, you have a good understanding about what uh, ESG net zero investors want from projects, you're absolutely right. They need certainty and law plays a role in that certainty as well. You know, the reason candidly why the UK is a fantastic jurisdiction to do business in is because of the certainty around the law that it provides. And that's been, you know, a, a base for, for a lot of contracts for very many years. So I think you, you look back at precedence, Chris, is the, is the answer to that and you apply it. And so, so that's, I suppose, where I come back to the point that I made at the beginning, you know, You've really got to look for experienced people who've done similar things, who can who can demonstrate a track record in in delivering those and, and, and thinking those uh, and thinking through those issues of what's happened before in similar technologies, analogous technologies. That said, you've got to be very careful that that anyone, including lawyers, don't get lazy and just say, "Well, that's the way it's done." Because you you know, in an industry, especially fast moving, sometimes it's worth challenging the norm and saying, "Actually, is that the best way to do it?" And we've seen that. I think probably, well, Lauren's probably seen it more than I have from the oil and gas perspective in, in, in construction. I don't know whether you want to say anything on that, Laura. Yeah, uh, thanks, Ross. So my, my focus is on uh, construction and engineering of projects. So I deal quite a lot with supply chain contracts. Uh, and I think, as Ross said, we we work from precedence on a lot of the technologies that we work on in the energy sector. But I think what's really useful in a, in a growing industry like hydrogen is drawing those analogies with um, other subsectors within within energy. And I think a good example of that is the work that we're doing in hydrogen, but also in, in other kind of emerging technologies, uh, things like geothermal, we're finding also similar to hydrogen. You've got stakeholders from a variety of different backgrounds coming together with very different expectations as to what that contractual risk allocation looks like uh, in terms of what the contract itself looks like as a starting point. I, I think uh, on the hydrogen projects that that I've been working on, I've seen maybe five different starting points um, of, of the kind of the typical standard form contracts that, um, that that we come across. And so you're trying to blend those different worlds and find a solution that works, and actually challenging uh, some expectations from probably both sides in terms of what the 
the best way forward is. So I think that drawing those analogies is something that um, an experienced legal team can really help with, as well as helping to understand uh, the wider legal context uh, in which they're working. As Ross said, there's a, a lot of factors to be considered uh, when you're looking at um, obtaining legal advice and actually the advice that a client might want uh, or might request from you might not necessarily be the only advice that they need. And I think having that joined up legal team, an effective cohesive team is really important in order to understand and bring in the right people um, to manage the the risks that that inevitably flow throughout the supply chain from anything from the land rights to the the regulation and and the supply chain and everything that's in between. So I think you're looking for a team that can have that holistic view uh, and help you achieve uh, a position which actually reflects an appropriate risk allocation, bearing in mind that who's best place to manage or ensure the risks. Yeah, and I think uh, you guys won't get any argument from me that lawyers are uh, absolutely necessary evil. I'd go so far as to say that we are we're just necessary and not quite evil, perhaps perhaps misunderstood. But I think that I think you guys have touched on a big theme, a big theme, an important thing for us to consider, which is that hydrogen in many ways is it's an evolving industry. It means that we need to build, you know, a lot of parties need to come together to develop what is going to be the legal and regulatory structure behind the hydrogen industry globally, right? So investors, funders, supply chain, off-takers, distributors, transport, who, who, all these different parties and contractually that creates, as you pointed out, Lauren, a number of different complexities. But I think maybe taking that bigger step back and saying, you know, from where you guys sit, is there investor and funding appetite out there? And what are you guys seeing in terms of project development and pipeline arrangements? You know, what kind of legal arrangements and contractual mechanisms are you guys seeing most commonly these days? Well, we're certainly seeing, I mean, we are seeing investor appetite a bit. We're seeing investor appetite across the board and that obviously includes hydrogen. And, you know, there's not a day that goes by when, when we don't get a call from someone who's looking at placing that. But as we all know, there's walls of money out there at the moment that are looking for a home in, in ESG, net zero, low carbon, low carbon technologies. I think the key, and I think Chris touched on this in, 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 in the previous question, was really, you know, investors are looking for certainty. So I guess what I'd say to you is we're seeing at the moment, particularly in the UK, because policy has been slightly slower to develop, but is now at pace. Um, those those investors are looking for um, uh, certainty from government, from government announcements, from the strategies that are being announced. And also they're looking at certainty of business models. They need to know that um, the, the industry is worth putting a, a big slug of capital into and that there is certainty going forward in relation to the to the incentives and the business models going forward, and the industry is going to fly. And I think in the UK we've just had a, um, the the business model proposed, which is going to open uh, this year, and I think that's piqued a lot of uh, a lot of people's interest. We're seeing a lot of toes being dipped in the water for early stage uh, investment in pipelines of projects. Um, obviously, we're seeing in in the UK with blue hydrogen, big consortia arrangements for blue hydrogen projects. We're lucky enough to be working on the HiNet project, uh, which is a, a blue hydrogen CCS project. And that's pulling together huge numbers of industry. So quite complicated 
um, you know, contracts, dealings between the parties and, and, and interrelationships uh, on that. So that's at one end of the spectrum. And then we've got at the other end of the spectrum, quite a number of projects where it's early stage, they're looking for funders, there's a sort of joint approach to development. But ultimately, what the investor is looking for is to get their hands on a pipeline of projects going forward. So if they're in there at the early stage, they're providing the development capital, working with experienced developers, they're sourcing projects, and ultimately, that's what, that, that's what they're after. It's all about securing a pipeline, I think, in, in that. Those, those sort of, as I say, joint development arrangements range from the very simple right up to the, the, hugely, the hugely complicated and kind of everything in between. And it, and it all hinges on really what people want out of it, what the exits are, and uh, how the DevEx is going to be spent, what exclusivity they need, and, and, and so forth. Just, just almost picking on that, Lauren, I wondered, um, given your sort of experience on the construction side of things, you know, when it comes to sort of uh, risk allocation in some of these business models, it's not just investor set; it's also government, right? And obviously, you talked about, you know, Ross mentioned the high net project. There's a huge amount of sort of questions about who should be responsible for storing CO2 for 50 years, who's responsible for getting the permitting for new hydrogen piping across a, a, a cluster. Um, you know, have you been involved in that and, and kind of how are people trying to come at that at the moment? Because cluster decarbonization is so much larger in, in scale than I think a lot of people realize from a safety, from a regulatory side and involves so many more bodies and consortia. So, so what sort of role would someone like Burgess Salmon play in that and why should someone coming at this from a consortium perspective, a developer be engaging with companies like you as opposed to trying to do it on their own and pick up the phone or call a consultant or whatever else that they might do? <laughs> yeah, so I think there are ways that you can manage the risk going into these projects. So there's obviously a lot of um, capital investment that needs to be uh, that needs to be made um, if you're fully, fully committing to these projects. I think one of the um, strategies we're seeing from a contracting perspective in order to manage risk is um, uh, at an early stage um, entering into sort of feed arrangements, so front-end engineering and design arrangements where, whereby developers are uh, engaging with designers and consultants um, on a very limited scope at the outset so you can explore viability of projects. Um, you might be involving contractors at, at that stage, but it's uh, with a very limited scope um, and it's it's really there to establish viability and, uh, and de-risk projects before you fully commit to those. So I think that's um, that's one of the, the key strategies that we're seeing leading into some of these these larger projects. I think I'd probably I'd probably add in on, on that one, Chris, that now, when you look at the large blue hydrogen clusters and the CCUS clusters, you're absolutely right. There's there's different components which make up that in the whole CCUS chain and different, uh, particularly in the UK, different instruments that are going to back off or provide incentives for each of those constituent parts of the carbon capture chain. And, and the reason that's come about has been years on, and years of government trying to get carbon capture off the ground. But the constituent parties putting projects together, turning around to government and saying, we cannot take the risk of this whole chain. You know, we are experts in particular areas and we will take some risk, but we're not going to take the whole risk of one person in this chain or one facet of this chain falling over. We can't afford to do that. And we need government to step in. And that's what they're trying to do now with, uh, with carbon capture uh, and, and the chain there. And I think, you know, that's the role that lawyers play is to understand what those risks are, working out and evaluating what those risks are, what people are prepared to take, and then working out, out as between the parties how that is governed and who's going to do uh, who's going to do what. And certainly on those projects, it's it it, it can be it can be intricate. 
So building on the theme of chains here, guys, obviously uh, the chain that's at the top of mind for most people uh, these days is the supply chain. Uh, and I think one of the things we wanted to touch on is, uh, and maybe throw this over to you, Lauren, to start with is, you know, what are you guys seeing in terms of how companies and projects are dealing with and allocating risks amongst each other in contracts for supply chain management, contracts for supply chain in general? Uh, how are you seeing people uh, and, and companies and market participants confront the uncertainties that we're seeing in the supply chain globally at this moment? Maybe just if I can add a bolt onto that, how's that so also always, there's always a bolt on Chris Jackson. But I, I just want to add a, I want to add a bolt on because obviously a lot of this also involves government support and a lot of government support has a time bound period and grants have time bound periods. And so if suppliers don't meet those timelines, a lot of these government grants are in default. So how are you also, you know, how does that bit bolt in? I think that would be also quite interesting given, you know, certainly in the UK, things like the industrial fuel switching competition, the net zero hydrogen fund, all of these, which which are time bound, right? Yeah, absolutely. So should we start at the top and work down? So if we're if we're looking at let's say the the business model, the new business model heads of terms that have just been released, there are inevitably a lot of things that will need to be flowed down into the supply chain contracts. And you've mentioned timing. So I think yeah, projects do need to consider including buffers. And we, we've seen this kind of thing before in, in terms of uh, rock cutoff times and uh, and the like. Um, so timing is, is really key. We've also now got in the UK the, the low carbon hydrogen standard that needs to be complied with as well. So all of these things are going to be, needs to be built into testing regimes um, within uh, supply chain contracts and backed off as much as possible. Uh, you've got elevated reporting standards, uh, force majeure and um, intellectual property requirements uh, and all of that. But I think the good news is that none of those things are none of those things are new. Um, they're the kinds of things that supply chains, even new supply chains like we're seeing being formed um, in relation to the, the hydrogen industry, they're the kinds of features that we're used to seeing in supply chain contracts. And it's just a case of trying to, to marry the two. Uh, at the moment, as, as we mentioned earlier, we've got stakeholders from a, a number of different backgrounds joining together in the hydrogen sector. So it, there's a little bit of, of flux in some places to how you allocate risk. But I, I think from a developer perspective, they, those are going to set some of your red lines, some of the um, the demand side contracts in terms of what you can actually expect at supply chain level. Looking at the fluctuation in materials and, and that sort of thing, I, th I think cost is inevitably a, um, a, a real challenging point and, and something that the industry has to, to grapple with because key to the, the business model in the UK, for example, is, is ensuring the economic viability of your projects to, to get it off the ground in the first place. And that's a real challenge given the um, the fluctuations in costs and the availability of materials and, and labour. And we're having some conversations with contractors where they are saying that they can only hold their prices for, say, 24 hours. And when you're looking at a, a programme that takes you into 2023, 24, 25 and beyond, that's a lot of 24 hours to account for. So we are getting, and we have seen over the last few years, um, a number of different kind of cost reopener clauses, if you like. So it started with Brexit clauses. We've seen COVID clauses and now unfortunately coming into Ukraine clauses as well. So um, there's no norm sets around those, but I think we would envisage 
certainly debate around what those cost openness look like, not, not just in hydrogen, but in the wider energy sector and, and other sectors as, as well. So um, I think it's one of those things that's constantly evolving uh, and negotiations will turn exactly on what's going on in the world at the time when, when you're negotiating. But with a mind on those, uh, those demand side red lines, looking at what the supply chain will actually accept given those um, the market volatility at the moment. I mean, Ross, just building on some of that, I wanted to just sort of get your view because there, there does seem to be a bit of a tension in the market. And I'm wondering how you're seeing is where investors clearly want that certainty. But exactly as Lauren said, you know, if a supplier is holding prices for 24 hours and, you know, you just have to look at the offshore wind sector and some of the challenges they have with where they committed to certain prices and now are in real trouble. There's clearly a, a responsibility on the supply chain to make sure that they can honor the prices they're putting up. But equally, if they can't provide that, certainty to EPC partners that are going to have to wrap this for structured financing or you know even just provide quotes frankly for the feed that's that's reasonably reliable for developers to have that confidence in the numbers they enter for business models and and frankly just even in commercial propositions you know what where does that where how are you seeing that debate playing out then in terms of how people are structuring the contract is that pushing more risk back on into investors or is the government being asked to step in and how do you think as someone who advises companies like Rodium, you try and sort of steer that path, if you like. It, it isn't easy, and we are in we we are in a particular uh, stage stage at the moment. But I think you you kind of put your finger on it there, Chris, in the sense that this is not hydrogen specific. I mean, this is this is this is an infrastructure energy you know energy wide issue and quite rightly as you pointed out you know offshore wind is facing exactly the same issues in fact they're they're lobbying in the uk they're lobbying government at the moment for an increase to the to the pop for the cfd which they're competing for at the moment precisely because of these rising costs that that no one had predicted and so i do think uh, and i think there is a role for for government in a in a in an area which is driven by an incentive or a business model, there is a case for government to look at that and see whether things are, are, are what things are in, in control and what should be within the control and whether there's certain thresholds beyond which the government ought to do something and show some flexibility. So partly on the government, I think there's also um, building strong relationships with your contractors chain and looking at those frameworks you know ultimately if you've got a very strong relationship with the the contractual chain you've got frameworks in place with people that will insulate you to a certain extent but not entirely Um, so so there's a piece on that Uh, and then I think it's from an investor perspective yes I think the investors do have to take more of a view and and, you know historically they do It, it may be painful um, you know, there may be a lot of chattering, but at the end of the day, they want to invest. They they want to find projects, and if this is a, if this is a macro issue across the board, we've seen consistently investors, funders, banks ultimately get themselves comfortable with what the position is, and just have to take a view. Otherwise, they sit there and they do and they do nothing, and that's not going to happen. <laughs> and so, I think one of the things that I want to touch with, or that we wanted to touch with you guys on, is demand contracts. So it's obviously fundamental. And one of the things we just wanted to touch with you guys on is what are you guys seeing typically in those contracts that companies ought to be focusing on? Why are these ahead? Maybe even taking that step back. And for those of our listeners who are here for educational purposes, as opposed to uh, B2B and business advice, uh, talk a little bit about what we mean when we say a demand contract in the hydrogen context, and then also more directly, what are you guys seeing as themes in that sector at the moment? 
Yeah, sure. Shall I? I'll, I'll, I'll give that one a go there, Andrew. I think um, when, what we mean by demand contracts in, in, in hydrogen is who's going to take the hydrogen at the end of the day, who's going to take it and who's going to use it. And, um, you know, in some, in some ways, that's, that's, that's the interesting thing about hydrogen, isn't it? Lots of people over the years have got used to low carbon projects being all about electricity, where as long as you produce the electricity, you've got a, you've got a grid there that's just going to take it and take it round to people and customers via the grid network with, with hydrogen. Hydrogen, there's all sorts of different demand users who want all sorts of different types of hydrogen for different purposes, which leads to you know different needs, different requirements, different pricing, even I guess um, for that. And what the the hydrogen industry has to do is marry up the production of the hydrogen to the demand, and and I guess to the distribution as well. We'd find a way to get it to the demand customers, which is you know which is an interesting one uh, as well. Those, those demand contracts are actually going to be crucial because clearly they're obviously crucial for the production and, 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 and for the revenues that you're going to get from producing the hydrogen. But um, at the moment, when, it, when you're looking at the UK in a business model, it's predicated on the fact that you will have at least one demand customer. So you've got to have found a demand customer. And whilst the UK business model that's been announced is saying, look, we will insulate you against a fall off in demand and volumes of demand. Um, ultimately, it's your risk if you don't have any demand, um, and so you've got you've got to have some sort of contract with a demand uh, a demand customer. Those those sort of demand contracts. Um, there's high level issues in any demand contract for any for any product in the in the energy sector. It's all it's all going to be revolving around price, how long that contract is going to be, how long you're you've managed to lock in your demand customer. For that period of time, which means you can you can finance and bank the project, the creditworthiness of that customer, the ability of that customer to change the pricing and price reopeners that that Lauren was talking about, really in in the supply chain there. And I think the other thing is for hydrogen, and um, you know, Chris will know better than I do on this, but it's the spec. It's going to be the spec of the hydrogen on this. What do you need to do because Consistently, where we see issues with demand contracts, particularly in the energy sector, is the specifications uh, of of products uh, and what that spec is and how and, and and how it comes through, and that's where you see a lot of disputes at the end of the day because someone has drafted a spec that and not or not concentrated on the specification and the legal provisions around that specification enough at the beginning such that later on there's problems it doesn't conform and there's big arguments as to you know who should pay what amounts what's going to happen but at that by that time people are locked into a project and locked into an offtake uh, and it's challenging so that that will be one area i think the that people should be should be should be very careful about and there's plenty of experience there from from other sectors like biomass and, and various other things and maybe I can ask you to drill down just a little bit. When you say the specs on the hydrogen, when you talk about that, are we talking all the different possible specifications you're thinking, or is it typically around purity? Is it around volume? Is it around compression? You know, what are the, where do you, if you can weigh in on that, where do you see the disputes and the, and the risks in that, in that specifications component? It, it, exactly that. Now, I don't know how much variation there can be, but I would say, you know, from what I'm seeing, it, it is around those those last three. It's not it, it's and they're bespoke for for each project. So it's going to be what a customer needs, what it requires, what what it's sizing. Because don't forget, when we talk about setting up a hydrogen production plant, we we naturally assume that it that you know the infrastructure is all about the production. 
And then maybe someone says, oh, well, there's also a bit of how do we get it there, the distribution. What, what often I think people overlook is the fact that the, the user of the hydrogen may well be uh, having to put um, yeah, infrastructure in place, almost certainly will be putting infrastructure in place or modifying infrastructure it's already got in place. So they're going to need to know that that infrastructure is fit for purpose and is going to be able to cope with and receive the hydrogen you're getting. So they're going to marry up that against the spec in the contract for the, for, for the demand. And I think it's that and making sure those two fit together because that's where, that's where things fall over. It is a technical it's a technical schedule. Uh, I guess what I'm saying about that is sometimes I think the the technical schedule is is sometimes not concentrated on enough, and also then the provisions about what happens if something is out of spec, what the remedy periods are, how it works. Um, people don't turn their minds enough to that, I think, and it's a, and it's a big area where you you end up in disputes. Thinking about this, one of the things that's quite unusual about green hydrogen, as opposed slightly to blue, is that in the context of the green hydrogen offtake, because you're not envisaging large-scale storage being funded through a business model, at least for some of the initial projects, and you're not envisaging huge amounts of transmission, at least initially funded through um, a business model, the sort of demand and supply have to meet in real time. And so you can end up with this quite sort of strange dynamic where, yes, you've agreed to provide X amount of hydrogen to a client. But actually, once you start going through planning, permitting, engineering revisions, you realize that actually how you can do that ends up looking quite different to where you agreed the contract at the start. And so how do you kind of build in enough flexibility that you can react to things that are somewhat outside of the commercial control, which is, you know, what does the engineering fundamentally say is possible and what do the planners say is possible while still keeping to the original intent of these agreements that underpin the financials? Yeah, it's it's a... It's a huge practical question, isn't it? And I, I think just going back to the point that Ross was making about the um, the technical schedules, I think that the I think we find the most successful projects are the ones where we have real collaboration between your technical teams and and the legal teams of the front ends as speaking to the the, the back ends of the contract uh, and building in that flexibility and having a think about the specific risks and the likely eventualities that you're going to have to um, to account for. Um, so that you can build in flexibility that way and legislate for how you might need to adapt to suit the demand side contract uh, and to fulfil um, the demand side contract as well. Um, so I, I think uh, going back to the point I mentioned earlier about um, uh, about feed and um, your kind of exploratory stage in uh, in any project, it, it's important to try and have those open and frank discussions about what risks are likely to be and what the possible uh, directions of travel are likely to be in order that you can I guess be as clear as possible because the legal side breaks down as soon as you don't have clarity as to the way forward as soon as you have ambiguity as to how something might be decided between the parties so it's legislating as far as you can um, which is easier said than done I think. It's a million dollar question that that one that one Chris but I think the interesting thing about the hydrogen industry is it's developing now Obviously, hydrogen has been around for for years, but we're seeing you know a big rise and a potential boom in in hydrogen production, particularly on the green green side. I think in any in any early early stages of a development like this, we've seen it with batteries, we saw it with wind, with solar, you know, a, any technology on the net zero side that you've seen over the years. There has to be an element of um, of cooperation between the parties. And you you need you need a group of parties who are prepared to work through issues because there will be issues. Um, and, you know, in these contracts, 
particularly the demand contracts at the beginning. But another couple of areas which are going to be really areas to focus on are going to be uh, change in law and, and force majeure. Because yeah, surprise, surprise, the law is going to change with hydrogen. You know, <laughs> the, the law isn't even developed yet for, for hydrogen. And so we know it's going to change. It's like an, it's a fait accompli. It will happen. And so we've got to have clauses that work for everyone, for everyone to get together and say, look, what do we need out of this? We need this industry. We collectively need this industry. Therefore, we need to show an element of flexibility in working through with each other, um, notwithstanding what the contracts say. And so I think that ties us nicely into what, with the time we have left here, guys, talk about regulators, the regulators themselves, the legislation that were that will be coming down the pipeline. So let's put it, you know, let's put it broadly and, and talk about it. This is sort of what your guys' experience has been in the UK. What are the legal frameworks that are that you see as being most influential in this sector? And then uh, what are the pinch points? What do you guys see coming down the pipeline that clients and customers and particip- market participants should be aware of in the coming years and what's going to be, what are going to be some challenges as well? I know there's a, there's a lot of different components in that question, but uh, I'll leave it to you to choose which ones sound most interesting to close on. Absolutely. I think when you look at the um, amount of infrastructure that is needed uh, in order to integrate um, hydrogen into the energy uh, market as, as a key energy source, there's a huge amount of infrastructure needed and we either have to find that through new infrastructure or uh, or repurposing old infrastructure but I don't think we can avoid either way that being subject to regulation and and, and planning and consenting um, so there's a real need for um, a, a streamlined consenting and, and regulatory framework both for implementing and installing all of that and for regulating its its ongoing use. So inevitably, there's a question around who does that. I think if you talk to our uh, our planning colleagues, I think they, they tell you that historically, the regulators and the planners are continuously under-resourced uh, and that does create constraints and, and delays um, in the rollout of technologies and industries that, that they, they're there to facilitate. So I think there's a real, or there needs to be a, a real focus on educating those within the process and ensuring that they are properly resourced and and have the right information um, in order that they are well equipped to to make reasoned decisions. And I think inevitably there'll be public concerns and and, and wider concerns around any new technology. I mean, hydrogen isn't, isn't new as such, but the way that it's being rolled out is um, is, is fresh and it's innovative. And I, I think we've found this, as Ross said, on, on other technologies, like the likes of onshore wind, solar, battery. I think as long as you can give the, give answers to those concerns. And, and I think we find when we're talking to our clients, the industry does have answers um, that actually that things will run a lot more smoothly. So I think that kind of informing piece can't be underestimated here. I don't know if you've got anything to add to that. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I, I would agree with that. And I think, you know, what, if I can talk just for the UK, as the UK for an example, at the moment, you know, we've got, we've now got a business model that's been announced, TIC, it's a form of contract, contract for difference. Um, it's one that people have got to concentrate on because there are some, some some models around that which we if if we had time we could talk about but i think so you've got the business model you've got the strategy overarching it which says we're all for hydrogen we're going to go for it great big tick in the box 
And then beside it, everyone, even government is saying, yeah, and we know that regulation will probably need to be adapted, but we'll, um, you know, we'll have to, we'll have to deal with that in in due course and, and cope with that along the way. And you kind of scratch your head and go, no, no, we need to, we need to sort that now, because as we discussed right at the beginning, you know, one of the big drivers for a new industry can be good regulation, facilitating regulation. So we need to tackle we need to tackle that now, and it goes beyond consenting and planning. It's about safety. It's about you know, all all of those things and how uh, and uh, and how hydrogen can be helped from that. So you you asked the question, Andrew, is there a pinch point? I think you know, speaking from the UK perspective, yes, I do think that there is. If we don't get our our heads around educating the regulators, getting the the regulation right, modifying the regulation where clearly it's not uh, designed to and it's not doesn't work for hydrogen, you know that we are shooting ourselves in the foot. I think if we could uh, if we could bring you over to the US and have you speak to DOE guys that would be very helpful. There's some pin- <laughs> there's some pinch points we'd like to address on our end. <laughs> well that's it from us here at Everything About Hydrogen. A big thank you to our wonderful guests Ross Fairley and Lauren Luscombe from Burgess Salmon for coming on the show. I hope you've enjoyed learning about some of the regulatory and legal aspects of hydrogen and development of hydrogen projects as much as I did. And as always, a big thank you to my fantastic co-host, Andrew Leedham, for his insights and perspectives as well. From the next couple of weeks, we're going to go back to our regular run of everything about hydrogen episodes. So we hope to see you and hopefully you'll be able to come and listen to some of those as well. And in the interim, if you do have any questions for the team from Burgess Salmon, please feel free to get in touch either through the Everything About Hydrogen social channels or you can find Ross Fairley and Lauren both on LinkedIn. And there's also going to be a number of show links inside this episode so you can go and find those as well. But from all of us here at the Everything About Hydrogen podcast, great to have you with us. Enjoy the rest of the week.